Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek Roulette Podcast. This is your dynamic host, Mike Spriegel. And this is your somewhat less dynamic host, John Lundquist, maybe? I don't know. We're here to bring you the best in geek news and nature. Guess what, people? It's an amazing world out there. And with us, well, eh, I'm not going to keep going on with this voice. I could, you know. You probably could for a while, but you'd regret it later on. I I think you'd hit that wall where after like uh, you would just get tired of it or like you'd just start waffling and it would become really irritating. So, hey, everybody, thanks. This is still, though, the Geek Roulette podcast. Uh, We are the hosts that we said we were. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate all our listeners. We, uh, by all means, for just housekeeping purposes, Facebook, Twitter, go ahead, follow us on there, as well as give us reviews on whatever platform that you listen to us on. So we do appreciate all of those feedback as well. Today's episode, we're going to talk about a band that's definitely very close to both John and myself. And that band I feel is definitely has the, I think the ability to be both one of the most underrated bands out there, but also still one of the most well-known I'd say cult bands out there in some ways. And that band I'm talking about is Faith No More. Hell yes. Yes. So we're going to talk a little about Faith No More. Uh, we're going to go about some of their history, what we, why we got into them, and kind of go through some of their albums and the things we like about them, some of the things we didn't, and maybe even talk a bit more about Mike Patton, who's really had a, such an amazing and dynamic career for the most part. Um, but let's, before we do that, let's do recommendations. John, what would you like to recommend to our listeners today? I'm going to recommend something I just started the other day, actually. So I haven't gotten super far into it. I suppose I'm a couple hours into it by now, but that is the Sandman audio. <clears throat> I don't know what you want to call it. It's not really an audio book. Audio drama, I think, is what they're going with. It's on Audible. So if you have a subscription to that, you're going to want to download this. It's pretty good. Uh, it's got a pretty solid cast, which I can't recall off the top of my head. All I can think of right now is that, uh, James McAvoy does, uh, I can't his name, Morpheus, and does a pretty solid jo- job there. Neil Gaiman is the narrator, and there's a few other, um, the guy from the, oh, God, I'm just, the Kingsman movies. Why can't they? Uh, Colin name? Firth? No, the younger one. Oh, uh, some, 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 some Yeah. Yes, he's in there as, I think he's Constantine. Um, but it's got a pretty good solid cast. Everybody does a really good job. It's so far it's been a fairly straight up adaption of the the first story arc of the uh, of the comic trade paperbacks. If you've read those at all, um, I'm not sure if it's going to veer off at all or not. But it's been it's been pretty solid. If you haven't read those, I think you can you can go into this not knowing anything. It does a good job, you know, obviously bringing you up to speed since it's following the storyline of that. The the production values on is good. It's you know it's an audio drama, so it's got a full cast. It's got you know sound effects here and there where they're needed. Um, that's really solid. So I think if it's, if you haven't read Sandman, it's one of those things where you don't want to go out and spend, you know, hundred dollars or whatever, buying all the trade paperbacks. This, I'm not sure how far into the trade series it's going to get. I can update you on that later once I finish it up, but it is a good, nice 10 hours long. So you can't go wrong with it. It's, it's well worth your time. Check it out. Or at least so far it has been. Yeah. I've heard uh, a sort of commercials for it on other podcasts. So it is something that I've seen get some publicity out there. So yeah, Sandman, I think it was a good read. I I think it is and it isn't. I think there's definitely various aspects of Sandman that don't hold up as well, uh, just because it has definitely some of that like late 80s, early 90s feel to it. But for the most part, I think it did an amazing job, you know, just as an overall story arc itself. Yeah, very much. And that's something we could probably touch on another podcast is 
Sandman and Neil Gaiman and stuff like that. But but yeah, I'll be curious to see if how much it holds up once I get further into it. For me, my recommendation, I am not all the way through it, but I can already say that what I have seen at this point has already made me very happy about it. And that is the second season of Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Um, the first season of Umbrella Academy, I definitely think was a very good and well done series on Netflix. I do feel that the two issues I think that plagued the first season is that one, you have to go through the establishing of all the characters and kind of just laying a lot of the groundwork, which I, I think that's always, I think the biggest problem with almost any sort of comic book based, um, media or you know thing that's moved into a different medium such as television or movies is that you go through the origin and the origins it's important but it also sometimes can derail the story because of all the exposition and everything um i think also the first season definitely did drag a lot more in the middle and i think the second season's doing an amazing job of avoiding that especially how they're doing the whole narrative of the actual uh you know series itself uh, it's essentially the, if you haven't seen the first season, the first season is available for ne on Netflix as well, about a group of children who were adopted into almost a superhero academy of sorts. But there's more going on in the background. There's lingering apocalypses. And now with the second season, again, it's once again trying to avert a catastrophe that could destroy the majority of the world itself. But uh, Umbrella Academy season two is on Netflix I would strongly recommend it. Yeah, I've heard pretty solid things about that one. I never finished the first season, so it's one I need to go back and finish that up. Yeah, I, as I said, I think the first season started out strong. But yeah, I can hear you. You're the one that dropped off. Possibly. You froze up on me. You're still no, frozen I... on, on the video feed. But anyway, we digress. I think it's your internet. This is why when you move away from the cities, you get worse internet. Down in Hicksville, people. Down in Hicksville. I mean, that'd be great. Like, hey, what do you have? A dial-up modem and an AOL CD that right now only has like about two hours left of time on it. Shoot, I wish I could upgrade to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, going into our arbitrary list. Our arbitrary list. Uh, because our main uh, topic is Faith No More. Faith No More uh, hit its stride and its greatest amount of popularity when it brought on Mike Patton as their lead singer, replacing Chuck Mosley, who was one of their few singers, but the one only one that actually was ever on uh, any published albums. So my arbitrary list I have is who are the worst three replacement lead singers for bands? And you know, there's a lot of bands out there. And, you know, John, we talked a little before airing, and he said he was having some struggles trying to figure out what he considered the worst. Uh, let's maybe that's why we'll just maybe start yeah. with first John. What what was your uh, guy you came up with? You said you only were able to come up with one out of the three. Yeah, and it wasn't so much that I was having issues coming up with who the worst was, as much as it was that as I was kind of researching it, none of them really resonated as much with me. Like there are a lot of them that I remember, and a lot of them that you know I maybe could have came up with, but I just as I read, I was like, oh yeah, that's true, but like just didn't really just like i said just didn't resonate with me the only one that really i remember like at the time when it happened you know that i was reading through there might have been a couple more but this was the only one that i really cared too much about that was good old blaze bailey for iron maiden he replaced uh bruce, bruce dickinson Dickens. i think what was it 95 or 6 or something like that he did a couple uh, albums with them 
93 or 94 actually because i think they had their two live albums which is a real live one and a real dead one i think that was 92 and 93 and that was the last work and that's when bruce went on to do a solo career after that yeah and he just i mean it's it's hard to be trying to be the follow-up to bruce dickinson because the guy is just friggin' amazing but the guy that they got just could not hold a candle to him and didn't even, it was just, just, just not good. I think he did, he did those two albums and he left and then Bruce Dickinson came back. And I think everybody would just rather forget that he ever existed as they probably should in that regard. He was also on my list as one of them. I think the problem with Baze, ba- Blaze Bailey is the fact that it, there was two probably issues. Issue number one is this. You can't go from, Bruce Dickinson, who's been called the human air raid siren, who has such a well-established high-pitched wail and almost like just a scream that is uh, almost synonymous with the band, and then go to a guy like Blaze Bailey, whose voice is in a much, much lower situation. It, I think that's that. You, it's just shifting gears way too much. And, you know, a lot of times you can sit there and say, well, the band is more than just a singer. You know, they have a certain sound. That's true, but his sound was almost iconic. The irony of this, of course, is that Bruce Dickinson was not the original lead singer of, of course, Iron Maiden. Two first Iron Maiden albums was Paul Diano, which, again, it wasn't his voice wasn't bad, but definitely Bruce Dickinson was much more dynamic and I think much more remarkable than him. So yeah, I think the second thing that worked against Blaze Bailey is that. By the time that you know Bruce left the Iron Maiden in the early '90s, that's when music was going through such a radical change and shift that I think it was easy for people to jump off to and like, hey, you know what? I like this band during this time, but now everything is changing, and it really just made them super forgettable. Yeah, and that's kind of the funny thing is that Blaze Bailey kept popping up on all the lists I was checking out, but yeah, and I'm really pointing out the fact that Bruce Dickinson was a replacement himself. Yep. So that was yours, and that's good because I, I knew that yours would probably be Blaze, and I figured that was going to, no matter what, also be on my list. I almost thought about keeping Blaze off my list because I had another person I could put on there. But uh, I'm going to go with my other two that I think were just such poor fits for the band. So the the second guy I'm going to choose for my worst lead singer is that uh, I think the problem is, and once again, the singer that he replaced was not the original singer of the band either in this situation. Um, you know, with Bruce Dickinson, he was with the band through, you know, the majority of their career and then eventually rejoined them. This, uh, this singer would take over for a second singer who was almost considered just as good where this will create a debate. Who's better between the two singers of the band. And I'm referring to Van Halen with Van Halen you have the internal debate of who was better, Diamond, David Lee Roth, or Sammy Hagar. And both those two, you know, had different styles. Like we've, I think, talked about it before on this podcast where I've never been a big Sammy fan. I think that they, Van Halen lost some of their dirtiness that they had when David left. Regardless of those two, again, this is another casualty of the mid, almost late 90s where, Van Halen was kind of kind of just flailing at this point. Uh, they had a good release with for uh, unlawful carnal knowledge, which was uh, you know released back in ninety one ninety two, and they you know toured heavily. Their follow up album to that was Balance, which really did not do well and as well as that one. 
eventually there was a feud between uh, the Eddie Van Halen and Sammy Hagar and Sammy Hagar would go on to leave the band. They replaced Sammy Hagar with Gary Sharon of extreme uh, Gary Sharon of extreme. If you do know extreme, they have known for songs like without words, which was like a love ballad. And there was a few other songs they had. This was something where you brought in a different singer. And I think this is definitely a situation where Eddie Van Halen thought Van Halen is him, his brother, and then Michael Anthony, which is funny because Michael Anthony would eventually become a pariah of Van Halen when the Van Halen brothers, you know, would feud with him because he would go on to play with a few albums with uh, Sammy Hagar when Sammy Hagar formed his own solo band as well as forming Chillingfoot. So it's it's just a bad fit and again there's where music was changing dramatically at that time as well too and the the funny thing about all of this too is that he only lasted one album and he was dumped and then david lee roth was originally going to come back to the band but they did a greatest hits album he recorded a couple new songs for that it it just didn't work and really it's been a revolving door of who's coming back is it sammy or david eventually I think everything's burned the bridges between Sammy and the Van Halen brothers and David, you know, he's playing with them right now, but yeah, uh, I, it, you hit a certain point. Sometimes it's not a bad thing to hang up or just try something different altogether. Yeah. I got to agree with you. Like you bring up a good point too, with the, the night mid nineties kind of being just a weird time for music. Like a lot of the looking back at the list I was checking out, there's a lot of them that were right from this kind of this neck of the woods. Right, because my third person I'm going to choose, I almost, my backup guy that I had if I were to take Blake Bailey off the list was John Karabi, who would be the replacement for Vince Neal and Motley Crue. Once again, it's another mid-90s switch out where Vince just had problems, went on to do a solo career, and Vine, uh, Motley Crue then recruited uh, John Karabi. And then they went to a more grunge sound because that's what was popular. It was a very poorly received album. They basically only lasted like one album. And then eventually Vince would come back after his solo career fizzled out. But I'm not going John Crappie. I'm going to go with maybe something that's a little bit more of a controversial pick here. So one band that has had, well, now technically three singers, uh, at this point in their career, their first singer was with them for about a good, I'd say almost like a little more than half a decade. They released like, you know, several albums and were an amazing rock band until tragedy struck when the lead singer died and he was replaced. Um, John, who am I talking about? I'm going to guess you're going with ACDC here. And uh, was it Bon Scott? And I forget his replacement's name. Brian something. Johnson. There you go. I was going to say something Johnson. You are absolutely correct. Uh, here's, the, I guess, the reason why I made this pick here. So when it comes to, let's say, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson, I think more people will recognize Brian Johnson. And I think the reason why is because they did have their biggest album with uh, Brian Johnson with Back in Black. Back in Black, I would say, hands down, is probably one of the best rock albums of all time. There's so many different songs and hits on there that were just great. Now, here's the thing. How can he be the worst replacement lead singer when they have also the biggest album on them? And the reason I say that is because with Bon Scott, I felt that Bon had so much more range than Brian Johnson. 
Bon Scott was an actual singer. He could sing. He had a lot more emotion into his voice where Brian Johnson was just a screamer. He would just have this raspy scream that he would do. And it worked for Back in Black. The difference, though, is that when you listen to any album after Back in Black, they all sound the same. Every ACDC song almost has that same kind of sound, same type of guitar sound. I felt that there was a little bit more variation and variance in how ACDC sounded in their albums before then with, uh, you know, TNT, uh, with uh, High Voltage, you know, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. All of those albums, I feel, had at least a bit more, you know, they sounded like ACDC, but I think there was a lot more range in there. When Brian Johnson came in, he had, you know, hit it out of the park in the first album. But, I mean, after that album, I think the rest of their albums in the 80s were all very mediocre. It wasn't until The Razor's Edge came out in almost like, what, uh, was it 1990, 91, I think, that that came out? Uh, You know, when you had Money Talks and Thunderstruck, it wasn't until that album that they really had another album that actually had anything on there. But I always feel that Bon Scott was a superior singer between the two. Interesting pick. I thought for a minute there you were going to go with Axl Rose for the worst on that one. Oh, no, no, no. Axl Rose, because Brian, to help fill in the information, Brian Johnson was the singer from 1980 and retired a few years ago. And the reason why is because uh, he was losing his hearing. He was fearing losing his hearing permanently. So it was either keep me doing, you know, rock music or, you know, hang it up. And he hung it up. And Axl Rose would then fill in on a bit of the finish out the tour that they were doing and a few other things, because why not? He already had the Chinese democracy out. So what else was Axl doing besides of the reunion tour? Sure. Wasn't doing a darn thing else. Right. So no, I, I, I think it's Brian Johnson. I, I know some people will sit there and say, well, once again, they had their biggest album with Brian Johnson. Yeah. They hit gold once. And then after that, it just was not that great. Yeah, and I would maybe take a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, get too up in arms about it, but I would say it's not. He's made, well, he maybe, in your opinion, wasn't as good as the original guy. I don't think that necessarily means that he was a bad replacement, though. Right. And I mean, a similar choice you could make to where there's, I mean, there's some singers where there's two different camps where, mm-hmm. you know, going back to the whole David Lee Roth and uh, Sammy Hager thing, like, some people argue, you know, what was better Black Sabbath? Was it better with Ozzy or was it better with uh, Ronnie James Dio? And there's a lot of people that actually like and prefer Ronnie James Dio's Black Sabbath to Ozzy's. I'm not one of them. I feel that Ozzy was iconic on several of those albums itself. But again, you have that type of situation. Almost everything after Ronnie James Dio sucked horribly, but... <laughs> yes, that pretty much everybody can agree on. Right. Now let's move on to our main topic. We're going to talk Faith No More. So um, just to give some background and backdrop on Faith No More itself, it's a, a California Bay Area band that started in the early 80s. Uh, they would have a revolving door of various singers. Um, such singers was Mike, uh, I think Mike Moore was one of them. And they originally were called uh, uh, Faith No uh, man or sorry yeah faith no more man and then eventually switched to faith no more and the reason why is because the nickname of mike moore was uh the man and when he left the band they just changed the faith no more another person that would be actually a singer for faith no more for several months was actually courtney love of 
uh, Kurt Cobain wife fame as well as whole. Uh, eventually, they would settle and have the lead singer Chuck Mosley take over. Chuck Mosley would go on to record two albums, one which was an independent release that was bought out by a larger studio, which eventually became part of Slash Reprise, and then their well-known, better-known breakthrough record, uh, Introduce Yourself. Replaced then a couple years later, because of things we'll get into later, by Mike Patton, the band would go on for about another decade before breaking up, and then it took them uh, at least almost another 15-plus years for them to reunite. So that's kind of a quick overview, and we'll probably break down a little bit more with that too. Let's get into our history with it. John, what was your uh, earliest history with this band and why it stood out to you so much? For me, and I, I won't get too in-depth, just because we have touched on it before. I think when we did the, uh, the episode with songs, that mean a lot to us. Um, Faith No More was kind of the first band that I picked up the, the cassette for and listened to, and it was the first thing that was kind of you know, outside of my box of what I was currently listening to at the time, I was listening to a lot of like, you know, radio singles, you know, pop music, whatever was popular and being played at the time. And then, and the song Epic came on. That was something I really liked. So like, that's a pretty great song. You know, the piano, there's everything. It's really, it's got a lot of energy. So I went out and picked up the cassette and popped it and played it. And it just, it blew my mind. It was like, you know, I've said before that it was something that it just, it sounded almost like something I shouldn't be listening to because it was so different from everything else that I was currently listening to it just it you know it was almost like a culture shock type thing to me just and it from there kind of that's kind of what I credit to just broadening my musical horizons and from there just going on to listening to the wide variety of stuff that I listen to now I probably wouldn't be listening to if it wasn't for you know initially buying that cassette and putting it in and just absorbing everything and following his you know Mike Patton's career you know through Faith No More and then everything he did after that so that's in a nutshell, that's that. How about for you, sir? For me, I didn't own the actual cassette for a good period of time. I dubbed the cassette from you. Um, I was uh, interested in them. The epic video definitely was a huge draw of it. And listening to the rest of the cassettes, that was a cassette that would get a lot of play. I think it was a good band for me at the time. At that time was when I was at more of a low point in my life. I was going through a little bit more getting into depression, my parents divorce, and it was something that was different. You know, I, I, a lot of people credit, I think faith no more because of how groundbreaking a lot of their sound was and how they were, you know, definitely a very hard band to categorize. I think what a lot of people like to do is like, at least especially on that album, like the first album that you got, which was the real thing. It was more of a metal funk, almost rap style music that was on some of the songs. That's what would stick out to a lot of people. But there was also, I think, a lot more in terms of just different types of song structures that were on there, too, that stuck out. And it was rock, but it wasn't quite rock. We it wasn't alternative because alternative wasn't a thing really yet at that period of time. It was something that was, I think, very unique and on its own. And because of that, I think that's what made it different from everything else. Now, I don't mean that like in a hipster, like, well, I like it because it's not, you know, hair metal or it wasn't rap or anything like this. It's not that at all. I just think that it was, it was such a unique way to present the music itself. And it still holds up and stands the time even you know decades later so yeah i i think you, you hit it on the head there is that it, it just sounded different you know i mean i'm looking at the track list now and there's just so many different sounding songs on there and i think 
to this day, like I'll appreciate, even if I don't necessarily like it, like I'll appreciate it when bands will do, you know, songs or even just the band sound sound itself just sounds different than anything out there. Even if it's something I don't like, I'll kind of, you know, be like, yeah, I don't really like that, but at least they're trying something different and they're being unique, you know, as opposed to just doing what everything else is. And Faith No More definitely did that. And that's almost kind of their calling card, just doing something different. I mean, even when you look album to album, the real thing is a very different album than Angel Dust would be the follow-up to that. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think different is almost the way to put it, but in a good way. Yeah, Angel Dust was a solid follow-up. Angel Dust would be the second CD I ever bought. Uh, and it was awesome because it came in the long box, and I still have the long box for that as well. Nice. Do you remember the first CD I bought? Um, I don't, but I probably will once you say it. We mentioned the band earlier. Um, ACDC? No, no. Probably uh, Motley Crue. It was Iron Maiden's Live After Death. Ah, interesting. I did not know that. That was the first CD I ever bought, and then uh, that would be the second one would be Angel Dust by Faith No More. Nice. Yep. So, yeah, I, you know, why are they a band, you know, that we like and others like? As a lot of people will cite Faith No More as being very influential. In sometimes both good and bad ways. Like as an example, some bands like would say like bands like Rage Against the Machine and Faith No More influenced them like Limp Biscuit. But let's be very clear here: couldn't hold a candle to you know what Faith No More was bringing out there. I it is a very different sound, and I think the one thing is Faith No More's career has gone on. The one thing they've done very well is not let them get. I think just locked down to a single genre. You could hear songs on, you know, both the real thing as well as Angel Just, which would show that, you know, especially a lot of Mike Patton's influence of having very much a lot of versatility and interest in music. And as their career has gone on, you've definitely heard a lot of those different songs. And even when Mike Patton went on to a solo career or his work with Mr. Bungle, you heard a lot of his influence, which was just all over the place. So, yeah, I, uh, they're, they're such an amazing band, in my personal opinion. I would agree. They're my favorite for a reason. They're my second favorite. Oh, you know, that's okay. That's still pretty It's high. still high. I mean, out of all the bands I listen to, look, looking at the bands in a retrospect, um, we're going to kind of go over like uh, each of the albums that they have come out, as well as some of their other uh, independent work and B-sides as well, too. Uh I'm going to lump these two albums together. So before Mike Patton and before the real thing, which was the album that introduced John and myself to them, it wasn't the album though, that they were best known for, uh, in 1985, the faith, faith, no more released. We care a lot. It was a full feature album. It was going to be almost independently released and, it was picked up by a studio, and then eventually that studio was bought out by Slash Reprise, which would go on to be part of that. Um, I'll say this about We Care A Lot, the their debut album. It sounds poorly recorded. <laughs> yeah, th- this one, in- Introduce Yourself, I haven't listened to a whole ton. Um, I remember having this on cassette at one point, <clears throat> and just not being all that impressed with it. You know, I mean, that, looking at the track listing now, there isn't a whole lot. You know, We Care A Lot is obviously a song I remember just because, you know, that's the title track. And it's probably the only one from this era that really gets played a whole ton, except for Introduce Yourself, maybe off of that album. Yeah, I mean, the the only songs on there that really 
survived through the years from that album itself was We Care A Lot, which was re-recorded and they had the lyrics redone versus uh, what the original recording was to be more reflective of what was going on at the time. Mark Bowen would show up on a few different releases and was also re-recorded with Mike Patton doing vocals on that. And uh, same thing as for uh, the song As The Worm Turns. Um, it, it's just a rough album. I think and I'll touch more on this when we talk about introduce yourself as well. It's Chuck Mosley, man. Chuck Mosley is just this guy whose vocals itself, um, I think is one of the biggest detriments. Uh, I would say this, the best song obviously on the album is going to be, we care a lot, but there's a far more superior version that would come out a few years later in 1987. In terms of worst songs on there, I don't know. I yeah, take your, take your pick. Take your it's, pick. It's, I it's, it's got a very, I feel like this one from what I remember has a very much more of a punk vibe to it than like faith no more would eventually turn into. Right. Um, and it, it, you know, it just, yeah, just, doesn't do a whole lot for me this album you know if this if this was if you know you gave this to some here listen to some faith no more and gave them this they would probably never listen to another faith no more album again right and you know I, there's there's some bands that would go on to do bigger things but if you ever look at like their first uh you know releases or that they ever put out they're they're bad like as an example i'm trying to remember the specific names matter of fact i can probably pull them up real quick uh, like, do you know what Pantera's first album was? Um, no, because all I can think of was like Cowboys from Hell, which again is like, you know, just their first album that everybody liked. Right. Everybody always knows that. But what if I were to tell you that before that, well, before Cowboys from Hell, they were uh, much more glam based and much more like weird 80s metal based. Yeah. That yeah. just. Yeah, that just doesn't fit. Their first release was called Metal Magic. Wow. And they actually had four releases that they would have before Cowboys from Hell. Uh, I want you to do this right now, John, just as a funny thing. Pull up Pantera Metal Magic and look at the cover of that album. I'm waiting to hear the laughter. <laughs> there it is oh my god wow that's yeah that's a lot of pink that, that's a lot more pink than you would expect out of a pantera cover so metal that magic is, is like almost like one of the band members like drew like you know it, would be it looks cool like, if we it drew like a cat person with a sword and then we have it looks like something you would have airbrushed on the side of a van or something like somebody wrote in like their notebook back in like a you know, math like uh, algebra class back in high school in like, 1981. Wow, that's that's some impressive stuff there. Right. So, I mean, here, here's a great example of like, yeah, nobody's ever going to sit there and say, yeah, remember like, you know, Pantera's first album they ever put out? Anthrax had like an album like that too, or like their first album was just painful. Even Anthrax disowns the album too. It's like, yeah, we put it out there. We didn't want to, but oh, it was just bad. Man, this is also like, you know, another fact, like uh, their guitarist. Do you know who the guitarist of Pantera is? Uh, is that good old Dimebag? That's Dimebag Daryl. You remember what his nickname was before being Dimebag Daryl? Was it Magic Daryl? It was Diamond Daryl because, again, glam band and everything. So going back to, you know, Faith No More, because we're not going to go into the weird history of Pantera's early days. You know, that that's kind of how I feel about We Care A Lot. It's just that it was an album that... They they threw out there, 
it's not that they were a bad band. They just didn't have the resources. They were still trying to figure some things out. Keep in mind, they went some, through so many lead singers even before Chuck Mosley. So after this, they were picked up by Slash Reprise, and Slash Reprise then would uh, you know help them put out what would be probably their more popular and debut album, which is called Introduce Yourself. So introduce yourself, um, definitely a much different, much more cleaner and polished album than, uh, we care a lot, uh, with this, they would have their break, technically a breakthrough song, which was, we care a lot and we care a lot, you know, even with Mike Patton, he would eventually go on to cover it live, uh, like at, uh, Brixton Academy, which was then released as a recording, but it's also a song that gets a lot of also airplay and other things. It's in the uh, movie Gross Point Blank and is also was used as a theme song for the show Dirty Jobs as well. So it, it was a song that I think was perfect for its time just because in the late 70s, it was kind of that just weird. It was still like almost like a punkish feel to it, but also kind of that late 80s feel as well. Um, but this would be their, you know, I say proper debut album versus what their previous one was. Before I go into my thoughts on this album, what are your thoughts on this album, John? Kind of like the previous one. I mean, like you said, this one is more cleaner. It just sounds like a better version, maybe, of, or not better version, but just a better sounding album than uh, We Care A Lot. But again, there's not a whole lot in here that stands out to me. And We Care A Lot, obviously, is a decent song. You know, Introduce Yourself, I seem to remember, but that's not like a good song. I seem to remember Anne's song getting some air, you know, being a song that was was a thing, but I couldn't tell you anything about it aside from just the name rings a bell like it's right. forgettable maybe that's the best way to put it it just seems like it's a forgettable album i i'll say this i like the album a lot with an asterisk i think musically this is an amazing album i think sound wise it, it definitely sounds like a Faith No More album. It sounds like the sound that you would eventually graduate into what became the real thing itself what really kills this album is Chuck Mosley's vocals. And I think the thing is, I don't even want to call what he does singing. It's more like he's warbling through the majority of the songs on here. Like he is just amazingly out of key, out of tone all over the place. But I would say, I actually like the majority of the songs on this album. It's just that you have to, kind of work past the vocals that really scare and appreciate i think some of the things on there i mean i i would say this you know going into you know immediately about you know what are my favorite and least favorite songs are on this album the least favorite song on here is definitely and song and song is just one of those weird songs that is as 80s as 80s can all out get they did release a video for the song itself but you know it's it's kind of just a weird song that doesn't really fit in, I think, with the rest of the album itself. But otherwise, like going into your best songs, We Care A Lot obviously sticks out a lot. But I think other songs such as like the Crab Song, Chinese Arithmetic, and uh, Faster Disco are all very good songs. And I would say this. Give the album a chance again, John. Give it a listen. Listen through the album itself. And as I said, you know, there's going to be those times where like Chuck's voice is going to be just one of those cringeworthy things where it's like, <laughs> oh man, it's just, it's just hard to listen to. But musically, like the majority of the album was written old the basis and with a lot of input from uh, Roddy Bottom as well. Martin has a few writing credits as well, but 
Gould, I think you can definitely hear the Faith the More influence of the band itself. Um, and it, it definitely shows. So I, I would strongly say give the album another chance, just with the caveat that there's times that the vocals are going to be a little distracting. Yeah, maybe I'll have to listen to this, maybe like tomorrow going back and forth from work and give it a shot. Yeah, I just give it a listen through, and there's going to be those little lulls in there, but you know, it, it's a decent album, I think. And I think, as I said, it just, it was good probably for its time, but Chuck wasn't going to be the singer for Faith No More. So eventually what would happen to Faith No More at this point is that they they had a lot of problems with Mosley. Mosley's overall behavior and actions were becoming detrimental to the band. He was during touring, getting very belligerent, fighting with like, you know, other people as well as causing public incidents at the debut, like for the record company, like the release party for the album itself, Chuck Mosley fell asleep on the stage and left a huge blight on Faith No More. It could have been very easy for this band to have been buried. So when you ask the question, you know, what happened with Faith No More and everything with Chuck Mosley, really you hear two different stories. Some say that they fired Mosley. Others say that uh, Billy Gould quit Faith No More, but then everybody else joined him with the exception of Mosley saying, that, hey, we still want to play with you. It's just that we don't want to have Chuck as our singer anymore. So they would uh, then take a talent search look to try to find a replacement for them. So, And they did. And who do they find, John? They found what... Yeah, they found Mike Patton. I'll just I'll just cut the chase. They found Mike Patton, and it's probably a damn good thing they did. I think what's even more impressive about finding Mike Patton for the real thing is the fact <laughs> that Mike Patton was only like 19 years old when they brought him on board onto Faith No More. He uh, had his previous work that he worked with with uh, Mr. Bungle, which was his own band, which kind of got noticed by the band itself. They tried him out and then realized, yeah, we're going to bring him on board. Um, but Mike Patton would become the uh, epitome of Faith No More and become really the face of it. There's a lot of interesting things about the real thing when you you know do some research and under, try to understand the album itself. So before we go into some of that, what are your thoughts on the album, John? Um, this, I mean, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I mean, it's looking at the track listing. It's just, it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's, it's got Mike Patton's vocals, which kind of, kind of go between your, you know, your classic heavy metal vocals to your rap, more rap inspired things. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's hard to put my finger. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. I mean, every song on there, there's not a clunker on them. Like, you know, we were going through picking our favorite and worst songs out of each of them. It's tough to pick a pick a least favorite on here i mean there's probably one i could come up with but but i mean they're all solid entries you know even the cut you know they've got the cover of war pigs which i I feel they do an amazing job with covering you know what's a pretty solid black sabbath song you know the instrumental song on there woodpecker from mars is just super offbeat but just you know still listenable and just kind of an odd entry but you know back when bands still did instrumental songs um you know and obviously epic you know the the main song off of there and you know, all the, all the singles are solid. I mean, it's 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 just a, a good, solid album. I mean, there's, I'm not sure what else you can really say about it. Although I'm sure you could. With this album, I, it's it's interesting for a lot of reasons. I think you know, song wise, all very solid songs. Again, all of the songs here, with uh, the exception of one, 
was written with uh, Billy Gould and Roddy Bottom having a huge amount of influence in how the album was wrote. Matter of fact, before they brought Mike Patton on, they already had the music written for the album itself. So when Mike Patton would come on, basically what Mike Patton's contribution would be would be writing the lyrics. He wrote actually all the lyrics for the entire album. Um, and with that being said, uh, with the exception, I think, of just War Pigs itself, but he wrote them. And what was impressive to the rest of the band is he wrote all the lyrics in about almost, I think, 10 days. They met up with them in the cafe, gave them a breakdown of what all the songs sounded like and everything. And then he came back and had lyrics written for everything at that point. So Patton wrote all the lyrics for the real thing. Uh, musically speaking, though, there was all Golden Bottom that had the huge amount of influence on what the overall sound was. And as I said, John, if you go back and listen to Introduce Yourself, you'll hear a lot of that Billy Gould type influence you know, you hear on the real thing, you'll hear it on Introduce Yourself as well. And you can definitely feel his hands and touch and how everything turned out on there. Yeah. Um, and that being said, I think like Mike Patton, obviously, and deservedly so, gets a lot of the credit for making Faith No More what it is. But, you know, Billy Gould and the rest of the band that have kind of, it's really a group project, you know, with Gould and everybody else chipping in and making that the sound what it is, along with Mike Patton's vocals. It's, you know, it's not just the one one man machine. Now, the other similarity that both uh, The Real Thing and Introduce Yourself have is that both albums were produced by Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace was the producer for both albums. He uh, stayed on after Introduce Yourself. Um, obviously, Gould was very familiar with them. You know, they liked him, kept him on. Matt Wallace had one complaint about The Real Thing. And the big thing that he complained about, and it's something that is very noticeable once he brings it to your attention and listens to the other Faith No More albums. One thing they liked about Mike Pat when they brought him on is that he had a good amount of dynamic range. The thing they didn't like about Mike is how he sang on the real thing. Uh, Mike Matt Wallace had a huge issue with Mike because he was singing all the songs very nasally, which if you listen to the real thing, yeah, he kind of really is singing it very nasally when you compare to how his vocals sound in uh, Angel Dust and everything after the fact. That's where you see him opening up and that's where Matt Wallace was kind of upset. It's like, yeah, that's kind of how I wanted him to sing was just like that on that album. Some say that, you know, the reason he sang that way was because he was kind of just frustrated because he wasn't involved in some of the music, you know, process of writing, but still was able to write the lyrics itself. But nonetheless, I it definitely I think contributed to some of, I think the unique sound that's on there. And I think that's also when you listen to like live versions of the songs itself, it sounds a little very different, I think, from the real thing as well. So that was, I think, an interesting note right there is just, you know, how, you know, the production of it too was different in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, now that you mentioned, I can kind of see that. Um, I don't think it bothers me at all, but I can definitely see where you're saying, like, you, he does definitely have kind of a different tone in this one than he does in, you know, the rest of Faith or More and his solo stuff even. Like if you listen to like from out of nowhere falling to pieces, you can definitely hear that nasal in there versus if you were to listen to anything from Angel Dust. Angel Dust has a by far much more cleaner and much more you can see him just opening up his vocals in that album versus everything else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, that album would go on. Uh they would have a few uh singles from that album with uh From Out of Nowhere Epic and Falling to Pieces being the core ones that are on there. John, by the way, an epic, whose fish was that that was in the f end of the video flopping around? If I remember, isn't that like Tori Amos's fish? It was Bjork's. 
Oh, that's right. I knew it was some kind of some, some female singer from back then. Bjork's, it was, yes. It was Bjork's. She didn't know that they took her fish to do that. And then, of course, caused a lot of issues with PETA about animal cruelty, about what was going on with the fish. Oh, yes. I remember that. Um, they, I think one thing to, uh, you know, note is that all the songs on there by Faith No More, with the exception of War Pigs, War Pigs would be a cover, which Faith No More would start to do a lot of covers too, which would permeate a lot of their B sides. But, uh, War Pigs, I almost feel that their cover is far superior to Black Sabbath's cover. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not as familiar with the Black Sabbath version. I've definitely heard this version quite a bit more. Um, I think this is kind of a case where Faith No More definitely put their spin on it. You know, like I've, I've said before, where I think the best covers are the ones where bands take so- songs from other bands and don't just play it note for note and don't play it, you know, tone for tone the same way. They kind of take it and they put their spin on it. I think Faith No More definitely did that with War Pigs and with pretty much all their covers that they've done. They've done a pretty solid job on all their covers. You know, they're up there, I'd say, with Metallica, where they kind of do a really good, solid job of putting you know, their flair on it and their, their own feel on their song, these songs and make them their own. I think the key difference between Faith No More's War Picks and Black Sabbath's is definitely there's a lot more energy and a lot more tempo, a high, faster tempo that they have in there. I feel that it's not that Black Sabbath's version's bad. I feel it just plods a little bit more where you can definitely feel more of the crackling energy and Faith No More. But in Black Sabbath's defense, too, Production-wise, the you know a lot different in terms of quality and equipment too. So that's also going to contribute to that as well. Um, so I'm, we're not going to move on to Angel Dust yet. Just one other side footnote, and I want to move before we move on to that. Faith No More would have another album that would come out, which would be more of an import-style album. Uh, it was called uh, Live at Brixton Academy. It would be their live album, where it's almost a complete performance of the real thing, except. Uh, there was one song that was not uh, played off the real thing, which was, uh, or at least not included on the album, but included somewhere else. Do you know what song that was from the real thing? Not on that album. Um, I don't, I haven't listened to it. This is one I haven't listened to as much of. It is underwater love. It's interesting because if you watch the home video for it, which I have, it's they perform the song and you see where the song is in there, but it is not, it was not on the actual album itself. Now, up until about several years ago, what I had to do was I took the uh, video performance off uh, a DVD and I ripped the song off on there and I made a single out of it. And that's how I had that added to my Brixton. It wasn't until actually they had the, uh, Oh uh, God! What? Which one was it? Uh, I want to say it was. It was the 2015 re-release of the real thing that they actually include. Finally, re-included "Underwater Love" on there. Um, other songs that were uh, played also on that uh, live album was Mike Patton's version of "We Care a Lot" and Mike Patton's version as "The Worm Turns." Uh, a few other things, too, that were also on that album as well that were only previously B-sides before from their other sing- uh, singles was the Cowboy Song and the Grade, which actually the Cowboy Song is an amazing album. It's actually one of my fa- you know favorite Faith No More songs, but you can only get it on the uh, Brick Live at Brixton Academy or the re-release of uh, The Real Thing. But definitely a solid song, and I really uh, like that one a lot, so... Yes, all good stuff. 
All right. So time goes by. Faith No More kind of does their thing. Uh, funny other side notes about the real thing as well is that that during that album in touring, they would then become enemies with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Anthony Kiedis did not get along with Mike Patton at all, and the band kind of feuded. Anthony Kiedis felt that Mike Patton and A Faith No More were kind of stealing the Chili Peppers sound, which, all right, they were definitely a lot more funk-based and everything on there, but I don't really ever consider the Chili Peppers and Faith No More ever to be the same thing. No, yeah, and I seem to remember that feud, and it just, I don't know. I hate to say it just seemed kind of petty of Anthony Kiedis, like, you know, hey, you know, they went off to be this hugely influential thing. It's not like the Chili Peppers were left as a side note in musical history. I mean, they they did very good on their own, right? And it's, you know, I don't know, it just it seemed like a silly, strange thing. Cause I seem to remember even like Anthony Kiedis like getting them kicked, you know, Faith and More not signed on to certain tours or certain festivals that they were doing because they wouldn't didn't want them on there or something like that. And it just I don't know. Like I said, it seemed like kind of a petty thing, but I suppose that's music and that's celebrities for you. Yeah. I don't know. I'm on the fence when it comes to Red Hot Chili Peppers. I like some of their stuff. I don't like some of their other stuff. They're, they're really, it really depends on just what you know, yeah. and stuff. I, I'm back, when it, back when it was coming out, I didn't care for it. Now that I'm older and I go back and listen to it, I can appreciate it more, but it's still, I'm just still kind of just like lukewarm on it. Now, moving on to Angel Dust, for their follow-up album, here's where Mike Patton, again, wrote almost all the lyrics for Angel Dust, with the exception of one song. Which song was it that he did not write? I'm going to guess, is that the bonus track, Easy, that's not even technically on the the track listing? Nope. It is Uh, not one of the extra tracks. It would be, what is it probably then? Oh, is it Be Aggressive, I want to say, now that I'm looking? It is Be Aggressive. And the yeah. reason why is because Roddy Bottom thought it would be funny to have Mike Patton sing about swallowing and blowjobs on the, on the stage. That's right. I seem to remember reading about that now. Yes. So Patton had uh, lyrics on all of them and actually contributed to some of the songs on there as well. Now, I hear a lot of different things about the making of this album. Like... Some things I hear about this album is that on some of the songs, it's not Jim Martin's guitars. Instead, it was Billy Gould playing the guitars for Jim Martin. Jim Martin, I guess, was starting to get a little bit more disenchanted with Faith No More and the creative direction that they were going. Uh, and from what I understand, this would be the last album, of, obviously, that uh, Jim Martin would be part of Faith No More and he would leave. And again, there's stories about it, whether he was fired or not. From what I understand, they said they fired him via fax. Other people said he left. It's hard to say, but it's not that his work on the album wasn't bad. I think that it was Gould's band that, in terms of music direction, I think adding Mike Patton to it added different styles and flavors to it, which I think he didn't quite like. That being said, though, Angel Dust is definitely in the top three of my all-time favorite albums of all time. Uh, Everything they went to do to put into the making of this album itself, just sheerly amazing. I There was definitely a, this is where you can see Patton's influence in the band musically. You can hear just such a wide variety of different songs on there. Some of the way that some of the songs were written were just downright amazing as well, too. John, what are your uh, initial thoughts on how Angel Dust is? I think even more so, I mean, I said a little bit about the real thing. I mean, just 
almost every song in the song this album sounds different you know i mean there's a different song for you know easy and midnight cowboys there is for land of sunshine you know rv is a you know caffeine's a really fast song it's you know kindergarten has a very different sound to it as does crack hitler and jizz Lobber is just this fast frantically paced thing it just it's just a almost like a pinball machine of an album it just kind of bounces you all over the darn place well it, as i said it it's stretching out and I think this is the this is what I think solidified my love of Faith No More is the fact that they didn't want to be stuck to I think just a single genre or a genre at all. Like you could officially say that Faith No More was probably a rock band. I wouldn't call it a metal band, but you know it, it's just a hard band to categorize. They went and they did their own thing, and I think that's they did it with such an amazing amount of just complexity and you know subtlety that they put in the music itself. Um, some of the things, you know, they did from a songwriting standpoint, which were just amazing, like Land of Sunshine, great way to introduce the entire album itself. And the best part is, is that the song pulls from basically three different sources. The lyrics are nothing that Mike wrote. It is what he took them from. Do you remember what he did or took them from? Like late night infomercials, aren't they? No. Land I thought Sunshine. that was the one. It is and isn't. It's designed. Oh, he like he like wrote it like staying up all night watching those. I think or something. Wasn't that the story behind it? He stayed up. So caffeine was one of the byproducts of that, where he basically did a lot of sleep deprivation, staying up for days, and that's how he wrote caffeine. Um, and he does have both lyrics as well as some of the music credits on that. Land of Sunshine. He pulled all the lyrics from three different sources. One, fortune cookies. Two. Chinese proverbs, but the third one is what is just downright weird. He pulled specific questions from the type of tests that they deliver at the Scientology Institute that when they, you know, test the theta levels of people. So, like, you know, the part of the song where it's like, Do you ever sing or whistle just for fun? That's on the Scientology test. <laughs> uh, so, he pulled. So he pulled from three different sources. So he he wrote the lyrics, but he didn't write the lyrics in some sense. He just basically lifted them from just different sources itself. But he is, he you know that's why lyrics. exactly um, with the whole album itself came out in 1992. Came out in spring. Uh, I remember when that album came out. I would you know was mowing uh, lawns for money at that time, and I remember that would just be the go to album for me to listen to at the time. Um, the first single that came off that album was Midlife Crisis, which, again, sounds almost nothing like you would ever think of a song itself. Yeah, and I will say, too, like, oddly enough, I do remember, like, when that first came out, I remember being in a friend's house watching the video for that when it first came out and being, you know, like, you know, this is the new Faith No More song. And I remember at, at the time just being, like, kind of underwhelmed at the time, I think, and that probably because it was so different from anything on the real thing that I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. So it took me a little bit to warm up to it. but. uh I do distinctly remember like being kind of like, eh, I don't know that I really cared for that all that much when I first heard Midlife Crisis. Yeah, it's weird because with Midlife Crisis, great song, great video. The song, what did uh, Mike Patton write? Who is the person that Mike Patton wrote the song with in mind? I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard that, actually. You haven't. All right. So, and it's ironic because if you ever looked at Faith No More set list, they had code words or names that they would use for their, uh, you know, some songs. 
the code name and actually it almost was the working title of the song until they changed it to midlife crisis was madonna hmm. uh, when Pat was writing this song he, this was like when like right around when uh, madonna not only was like going through her whole vogue dick tracy phase but also when she was starting to get to that weird sexual phase like justify my love and as well as having her tabletop sex book and everything and Mike Patton wrote this song with her in mind because she was just all over the place and he felt that, you know, she was just going through something because she didn't know how to change with the times and the career and she was getting desperate. So, you know, midlife crisis. And that's what, you know, he wrote the song in terms of, you know, how he perceived it was, it was that. And you would, uh, if you take a look around, you know, and as I said, at set list, that's the title that they have on their set list to indicate that midlife crisis is on there. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Yep. So yeah, midlife crisis, you know, was their first song they had on there. They would have a few other uh, singles that were released on there, such as a small victory. Everything's ruined uh, as well as uh, easy, which would be a re-release bonus track that would come out and eventually become one of their more popular and favorite songs too, to be performed live as well. Um, with the album itself, the other thing that would go on to help maybe boost some of the notoriety of this album as well is that Faith and More then would go ahead and embark on a super tour where they would open for Metallica and Guns N' Roses uh, on a multiple year tour. And they were, uh, we saw, me, John and I both saw them when they were here back in uh, 92 at the Metrodome, one of the worst venues ever to watch a con uh, concert of any sort. Oh, yes. Well, just it's Metrodome was uh, the original home of the Minnesota Vikings and Minnesota Twins. What made going to concerts there so painful is that it had this giant bold dome. Like the whole stadium was perfectly round and it had a Teflon roof. And when you were there for concerts, the sound would just ricochet off the corners. And there was just so much echo and reverb that sometimes it's the concerts were still okay, but reasons bands would perform there is because it held so many people and it was a venue that had yeah. the largest amount of people capacity at the time. Yeah. It was just the only big venue around here in those days. Right. You know, now that that's been replaced both, uh, you know, a few different places. Now the twins play at target field, which they do have some concerts there, but it has to be the big name acts. And then us bank stadium, they've had big acts there, like uh, both guns and roses, Metallica play there as well. Um, with this album, uh, what would you say your favorite song is off it? It's tough to say. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Easy, as I've said before, but technically that's not a, uh, an original release on here. I'd probably have to go with, geez, I don't know. i got to just pick one. I do like Caffeine and Land of Sunshine, so probably one of those two. I would say Caffeine is probably my favorite song on the album itself. It's something that i feel that you know musically sounds just amazing an amazing amount of buildup on there the lyrics mike Patton just just nails i think it's overall point of view of just fame and the energy and just everything else that he was trying to get across in the song so caffeine is definitely my uh, favorite song on that album uh what do you think the weakest song in the album is oh uh, that's hard to say being like my favorite album um I'll give you a tip. There's only two letters. Oh, RV? Oh, no. yeah. Kindergarten's a good song on there. I like Kindergarten. I, I think RV I is probably the weakest one. 
Yeah, I suppose I give it to you, but like I said, it's hard, it's you know, there isn't a bad song I, out here, so it's hard to say. I think RV is much more of a, like a shtick almost, where it's like we're gonna play this trailer, you know, park kind of country music song in the album itself, and I think it's 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 something that feels I think out of all the songs in there feels a little out of place. It's not a horrible song, but I don't think it's a song that matches up with the rest that's on there. Yeah, I can give you that. It definitely does have Never a different lo- song than the rest of it, but but not other bad. fun facts of note is the last song that was ever played at my wedding uh reception was Midnight Cowboy. Nice. That was actually I had that not even related to your wedding. That was your ringtone for quite a while on my phone. Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> so Angel Dust, an amazing album. They would uh have some other b-sides that would come out they had a kind of almost a sub album called songs to make love to which would have easy dot shoots and fest let's lynch the landlord and there was uh one more on there too can't remember what it was uh it was but, yeah i can't think off the top of my head but either way uh you know it spawned uh definitely I think this is the as much as the real thing is probably considered like an important album in terms of music. I feel that Angel Dust is usually going to be always the one that's cited as being probably the most influential out of the two, and it is also the better selling of the two albums as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the more commercial sounding one. I think you know between the two of them, um, it's a little bit more polished, I would say, than than the real thing. But uh, but yeah, yeah just, definitely both great just, albums and. What? I just realized we never talked about what our favorite song and least favorite song was off the real thing. Um, why don't you go? What do you got? Uh, my favorite song off uh, the real thing. Man, I, I'm going to actually say it's Underwater Love. It's a weird, creepy kind of song in so many different ways, but it's always a song I think that always stood out the most to me on the album. You? Yeah, Underwater Love is a solid pick. I think I, I'm going to have to go stereotypical and probably go epic, I think. You know, it's the one that grabbed me. I still love the piano in it and just, you know, it's just an awesome, great, solid song. Uh, what song did you like the least? Least, I think, uh, let me think, probably, what is it, Zombie Eaters, I think, probably, I would go with maybe. But again, it's not I like there's one. Went- I almost went Zombie Eaters too, but I actually went with Woodpecker from Mars. I, it's just something that I feel doesn't hold up as much as time goes on. Yeah, that's probably the least you know less listenable than than the other one. I mean, you're you know you're never really going to be. I'm in the mood to listen to Woodpecker from Mars, but you know, because it's just kind of just a yeah. strange sounding weird song. Um, I've got kind of a soft spot for it though. Hmm. All right. So let's uh let's move on. So the problems that occurred between Jim Martin and Faith and Moore would eventually lead to his split and departure from the band itself. Not before, of course, he made an appearance in Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Do you have yeah. to remember that? Uh, I don't I don't know that I ever saw that one. You never actually it is so much better than Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I prefer Bogus Journey over Excellent Adventure nine times out of ten. I do I do remember that Faith No More had a song on that soundtrack, but I never actually saw the movie. Maybe with, with the new one coming out, whenever the hell that's supposed to come out, maybe I can do a double feature for that and the new one. Coming out in September. Nice. 
Hopefully, if the world yep. doesn't burn down by then. Oh, no. They're releasing the movie both simultaneously in theaters and on video on demand. Nice. We should do a review for that one, maybe. Yeah, but you got to watch Bogus Journey first. We'll make that the episode of... of <laughs> make that the movies John hasn't seen yet. We could. I was actually going to talk to you about that because I should be home alone this weekend to watch whatever the hell I want on TV. Well, we'll figure that out. Um, so after losing Jim Martin, basically they were kind of up in a limbo what to do at this point. And uh, what they would eventually go and do is this. They would recruit a guitarist, Trace Bruins, who had play, who played previously with Mike Patton's Mr. Bungle Band. They would use him to record in the studios. Um, and, you know, they would record then the album King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. An interesting album, and I think again, this is once again coming out during uh, the mid '90s. It came out in 1995, and that's just when uh, music was just kind of just all over the place in some ways. And I feel that this is where this isn't considered Faith and More's best album, but nonetheless, I think it's very fitting for the time because I think they were the ones that were willing to brace that we don't have to sound like one particular thing. Uh, Trace Bruins would go on to record on the album, but touring he would go on and uh, basically by Dean Menta, who was one of the roadies. So he would play live, which, you know, you know, that's it, it was an, it's an interesting album in a lot of different ways. There's this is where I think you'll hear the most amount of variety of Faith No More in terms of songs. Um, your thoughts on this album? This one, I distinctly remember when this coming out, and this is probably my least favorite of their albums. Um, it's probably the one I need to go back and listen to more just to give it more of a chance. Um, I don't think it's bad by any means, but it was, I remember when I first picked it up after Angel Dust, I remember just being underwhelmed and, you know, and unlike when I was kind of underwhelmed with Midlife Crisis, you know, that didn't go away for a while. I kind of came to appreciate it, but it's, you know, like I said, it's probably my least, you know, not probably, it is my least favorite of theirs. Um, but it's still solid. It's got a few good songs on there, but I think it's, you know, I think it's probably a case of them trying to, f- you know, different stuff and not always working um, because it does have quite a different sound than their previous two albums. I think even more so than like, you know, Angel Dust had a different sound than the real thing. I think this has a, is a bit more of a distinct departure from those previous two albums than Angel Dust was to the real thing, I think. I think with this album, it's one of those weird situations where I think the songs work better, I think, individually than they do as an album. If you were to try to listen to this album straight through from beginning to end, there is so much variety and difference in styles from song to song that it's it's a harder thing, I think, to listen to all the way through. But if you were to cherry-pick songs or listen to them individually, I think they sound a lot better in verses as a whole, if you can kind of understand what I'm getting at at that point. Yeah, I can um, see what you're saying. Like, put it on random on a, you know, throw some other songs in there in the middle to mix it up a bit or something. Right. Um, this album, again, Mike Patton doing all the lyrics. Again, Gould doing the majority of most of the uh, you know, music that was being written on all the songs itself. Uh, they would go on, they would tour for this album itself. And, you know, with this album, there's some actually great songs on here. There's other songs that really have to be in a certain mood for 
Uh, they did a lot of B-sides for this album, too. They uh, A lot of the B-sides they had, there's a variety of different covers that they did. Um, you know, they had, like, a, in terms of, let's say, songs, uh, Digging the Grave was one of their you know, releases that they had for uh, singles. Evidence was another one, as well as Ricochet. Um, I Started a Joke would also become a sort of a known, more known uh, Faith No More song. It's an actual cover of a Bee Gees song as well uh, from the Gibb Brothers. Uh, it's also interesting for another reason, because the video itself for I Started a Joke does not feature any member of the band, but it does star somebody in there that would go on to have a big career. Who is that? I don't think I've ever seen the video for that song. It's a great cover, but I don't think I've ever actually seen the video for it. You've never seen the video for it. Well, what not. if I were to tell you that in the video, Martin Freeman is in the video? He is, really? He is. It's like, I mean, this, this video came out like in, God, when was it? It was, I think the video didn't come out until like, you know, uh, they released their greatest uh, hits album, Who Cares a Lot. And, they released a video for it based on then, but yeah, Martin Freeman is actually in the video for that. You watch the video. It's, it's a weird oh, yeah. thing. It, there he is. Yep. And I actually have, I actually have this seen this video, but it's been a long ass time and I don't remember until I just pulled it up now, but yeah, there's, there's good old Martin Freeman. Yep. There he is in that video. So an interesting uh, thing right there in terms of weird connections. So, um, with this album, you know, uh, as I said, I, there's a lot of things on here I think that work well. I think they do play off a different type of thing. They play a lot more songs that are a lot more relaxed and a lot more almost lounge music-y in some ways. You have some other songs that are very just hard, violent songs. You have other songs that are maybe more traditional in terms of rock songs itself. It's it's a very wide mixture of you know just music on here. Um, during this time, you know, they had a lot of other struggles too with recording. Uh, this is when Roddy Bottom was starting to get a little bit more into depression and starting to get a little bit more into drugs because of the loss of his father. You know, you had the band that was still trying to like get itself back together after losing Jim Martin and not having an actual, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, not having like a, a steady guitarist at this point, trying to figure out what to go from there. So. Anyhow, uh, with this album, I guess what I would say is this. It, it's definitely, I think, a very unique album. It's not a bad album. I, I almost kind of agree with you that it's probably one of maybe their weaker albums. It's harder between this one and album uh, album of the year, and which one is probably the weaker of the two. What's uh, What would you say is your favorite song off this album? Hard to pick one. I mean, I, I, I remember liking Ricochet, having a different sound. Evidence is kind of like you were saying, a little bit more mellower, smoother type song. Um, if I had to pick Digging the Graves, also, you know, not bad, but I don't think I'd say it's my favorite. I would, maybe Ricochet, I suppose. I'm going to go with Ricochet. Just I'm going to call it now. I'll say Ricochet. We'll go there. I would say Evidence. I think Evidence is definitely just one of the songs that really showcases Mike Patton's overall vocal range. It does have that more like smooth jazz lounge kind of feel to it, but you know, it's done so well. And if I don't know if you ever heard like the Spanish version of the song as well, that's also just amazing as well. Um, what would you say is the weakest song on this album? Oh, let me think. 
I seem to remember Ugly in the Morning being kind of bad, but I don't, there's there's a couple I seem to remember on this one, like being just like songs that, yeah, I can probably hit the skip button on this one. And I think, yeah, probably Ugly in the Morning, maybe Cuckoo for Kaka. I'd probably have to, I'd have to listen I like to them. I like Cuckoo for Kaka. I, I, I would say, the, in my opinion, the weakest song on this album is the opener tr- opening track, Get Out. I just feels like such a generic rock track almost. And uh, it's actually the song that is written completely by Mike Patton. So there's no Billy Gould influence in the song as well. And it feels like maybe it's something where Patton was just left to do his own sort of thing in the song. And I think that one just probably comes off the weakest out of all the songs on the album, in my opinion. Okay, Mike, we'll let you do everything on this song. Well, and that it's probably like too, like you have a guy like that's also done the Mr. Bungle albums too, and he's used to like having certain weird ways about him. But yeah, I definitely I think uh, you know, good album, but they were never gonna be able to recapture, I think, what they did on Angel Dust. I think Angel Dust was the perfect album for the time. This came out in a time where once again music was just in a different place and it it wouldn't show up as maybe as strong as some of the other albums because of that. No, yeah, I think definitely, you know, I mean, after Angel Dust, you almost, you know, it's almost got to be a step down. I mean, you're just expecting so much. And this is, this is what I think in the next couple of days, I'm definitely going to give a couple of listens through, listen through again, just to refresh my memory on it now that I, you know, have a different frame of mind than I did back when I originally listened to it. I think it's, I'll probably appreciate a lot more on it than I used to. Uh, so moving on, about a year or two had passed, and uh, eventually, you know, they didn't want to use Dean Menta as their recording guitarist. Uh, Trace Bruins wasn't brought back just because Billy Gould really just didn't like Trace Bruins. Uh, that was part of the reason he also wasn't brought on as a touring guitarist as well. Well, it's one of the reasons. There's a lot of things you'll hear, and some people, you know, I think there was also some minor friction in the band because of Mike Patton and his own personal work with Mr. Bungle and, you know, two separate lives itself. Going into album of the year, uh, they would then recruit uh, guitarist John Hudson. Uh, John Hudson would become their, not only their guitarist for that album, but who would then go on when they would reunite as a band, would be considered their main guitarist who has stayed with them since. So John Hudson, you know, has now been their guitarist, probably the longest out of any of the other guitarists that have been on the band itself. Um, Album of the Year came out in 1997, and the recording on this album was definitely very... uh, I think rough in some ways. Uh, there was some uh, word that, you know, rumors I heard that Mike Patton played a lot of the keyboards on this album because Roddy Bottom was just having a lot of drug addiction issues around the time. Um, you know, you can definitely hear in terms of the songs that were being released on here. I mean, I, it's it's an interesting album. I This one right here definitely feels like it comes off a lot more like an actual just straight-up rock album, I think, versus some of the other stuff that they do on there. Uh, Billy Gould has, you know, some writing credits on the album, but really it's a much more Mike Patton written album versus anything else that they had on there. Uh, What are your initial thoughts on album of the year? And this one for me, I think I I definitely like it better than King for a day. Um, But I also do remember for some reason, I don't think I, Got this one like right when it came out. I think this one took me a little while to jump onto for some reason. I'm not sure why. I don't remember. Um, so I think initially I heard a lot of these secondhand when they first came out. But for me, this one's 
you know, just for me, it's a lot more solid than King for a Day. Um, you know, Strip Search, Collision, Last Cup of Sorrow, Ashes to Ashes. I mean, it's all, it's pretty solid all the way through. I mean, it's definitely not my favorite album of theirs, obviously, but I think it's more of a return to form for me than than King for a Day was. You know, this is kind of them, you know, showing that more of their, you know, their true colors and what they're, you know, capable of is, is you know, more, more listenable, I think, is probably what I'm looking for, I think, than King for a Day. You know, as I said, I, I feel this was definitely a lot more straightforward rock album. And again, coming out in 1997, 1997 was just a weird, weird place for music. That's when I think you definitely had rap at its probably one of, uh, you know, an R&B hitting its biggest point, you know, in terms of how things were. I mean, that's where artists like Biggie Smalls, Puff Daddy, you know, Tupac were all just ruling the airwaves around that time you had pop music that was just becoming a much, much bigger influence. That's when you started seeing like almost that, you know, a year later you'd have the rise of all the boy bands and all the teen pop singers and everything. But you still had a lot of other manufactured bands like 97s when like the Spice Girls came out, you know, rock wasn't really a very prominent thing around that time. Uh, you, you know, you had bands like Garbage, you know, with their debut of like, you know, Stupid Girl and, uh, you know, making a bigger impact around that time. It was it was just, again, it was a weird time. And it's the album itself released some singles. The singles they released were Ashes to Ashes and Last Cup of Sorrow. But, you know, around that time, I mean, I remember seeing the videos for those, but I only saw the videos for those very late at night on MTV because again around that time mtv was becoming a beast of a different nature around that period of time and it it, it would go on and the band just started having some issues because you know Patton wanted to go on and work some other side projects and there was some friction between some of the stuff they had uh, originally they were supposed to be a support tour for aerosmith and said that they decided that you know everybody was going to go on to pursue just individual projects like uh, I remember uh, uh, Roddy Bottom would go on and he would do Imperial Teen as his side project around a little after that time itself. Billy Gould would go on just to you know do some various things, but Mike Borden would go on and actually drum for Black Sabbath to replace Bill Ward because Ward was uh, you know sick at the time, and he would actually you know, Mike Borden would go on and drum with a lot of different bands around that time. So. You know, this would be the album that's where Faith No More would break up. And, you know, it's it was one of those things that I think the band felt they kind of ran the, you know, ran their pace. And I think they also realized music just wasn't ready for what they wanted to do at that point. Yeah. And I think all that being said, I think it's true. I think this album sounds a lot more like you were saying. It sounds more, it sounds more safe, I think, than a lot of their other albums. You know, this has got a lot more songs that, you know, you could you could see playing on the radio or on MTV or something like that. You know, none of them really became all that popular, but I think these definitely have a lot more, you know, it's not quite as experimental. They're a lot more just, you know, straight up songs that are, you know, maybe sound a little bit different than what was coming out at the time, but it's not quite as revolutionary as maybe you're expecting from faith or more usually. But as I said, Gould had a lot less influence on this album. And I think when I listen to album of the year, Another album that would come out about a year or two after this one is um, uh, the lay of the Mr. Bungle album. God, what am I just blanking on? California, California, baby. 
Yeah, California. I almost want to say Californication. I'm like, no, that's the oh. Chili Peppers, and they hate Faith No More. Yes, yes. But I almost, I almost want to say that there's some songs on here that definitely sound like almost a precursor to, you know, Mr. Bungle's uh, third major release. Yeah, it would come out a few years later in terms of just song and style on there. So, but as albums go, it, it wasn't a bad album. I think there was some songs that stood out on there well. I think there were some songs that were definitely big yawns on here i think comparing like i know you said that uh king for a day was your own your least favorite album it varies i feel that king for a day is a much more i think solid album than album of the year but album of the year probably has better songs on it than king for a day if that makes sense yeah no i think so like i think the songs i like off of here that i mentioned are pretty solid but the ones that you know there's a few here that I can't even recall off the top of my head what they sound like, like She Loves Me Not, Homesick Home, Paths of Glory. I'm sure I'd recognize them if I were to play them, but like off the top of my head, like I'm just I'm getting blanks on those. Yeah, I mean, going off this and you know, saying, hey, what are my favorites on here? My favorite song on here would probably have to be Helpless. I kind of just like the overall sound and feel of that. It's probably, I think, the most complete song on the album that sounds different from everything else and is its own thing. What about you? For me, I think I go Strip Search. It's got kind of a different, you know, it starts out differently. It's got kind of a bit of a mellower, slower tone, but it kind of got, at the same time, it's got this build to it and it kind of, you know, comes into its own at the end. It's just got, you know, different song, which I think is what we, or at least I like Faith No More for, and it's pretty good tune there. Uh, worst song on there, Homesick Home, hands down. I, it's just one of those songs that almost feels like RV Part 2. Yeah, and like I said, I'd have to, I'll just probably double up on that with you because like that one along with those last five really just aren't, you know, aren't ringing any bells for me. Definitely a lot. It almost feels like a lot more filler. Even the bonus songs that they had on like their B-sides or other releases, uh, the Big Kahuna and Let Up Let Go, definitely feel like the weakest batch of uh, bonus songs compared to like what their other previous albums were. I mean, when I found out that Faith No More broke up, it didn't surprise me. It was definitely disappointing, but after hearing this album, it was something along the lines of, like, you know what, though? I, I can get it, you know? And, you know, it still didn't diminish anything that Faith No More did prior to this album or what they achieved in their careers as total, but you know, yeah. to be quite honest, you know, and you know, the band themselves say that if had they stayed together, it would have gotten a lot more. They feel their music would have gotten a lot more mediocre and would have been a lot more bland. And I think it was probably better that they did break up in the sense that all of them would go on to like work with different types of artists, different types of styles. And I think definitely they all were able to do things that they enjoyed, you know, which was, I think, a very big thing, especially with Mike Patton. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, as much as a bummer as it is to have them break up, I think I'd rather see them break out and go on, you know, somewhat of a high note. I mean, because it's still a very listenable album. It's still great stuff, you know, whereas if I think they had churned out another two or three albums, they would have just been like, oh, yeah, I remember back in the glory days when Faith No More was actually pretty good. Um, so I think, yeah, calling it, you know, having the guts to call it a day now, even though they probably could have put out another couple songs and still gone on a few more tours and raked in a bunch more money. I think having the guts to call it a day, each do their own thing, kind of refresh themselves creatively until they would come back later um, was definitely a good thing, especially concerning some of the stuff that we got from them as solo, you know, or working with other people is really great stuff. 
Agreed. So they broke up. We'll uh, we'll maybe touch back on some of the stuff they did in the meantime, but it wouldn't be until uh, 2000. What was it? I want to say it was around maybe 2012, 2013, I think. 15. That Well, no, 2015 is when their next album come out. They did a reunion tour, though, before that, though. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that was a couple years before that. Right. Actually, nope, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It's 2009 is when they started going out and doing a few shows and then would... Uh, subscribe substantially tour on and off, you know, within let's say the next couple of years after that as well. Um, they would come back together and eventually in uh, 2015, they would release another studio album called Soul Invictus, which would be their overall seventh studio album. Um, but as albums go, it what, what's your thoughts on this album? I'm kind of curious I, on it. I remember being very apprehensive when you know, hearing this was going to come out. Um, just because most of the time when bands, after they've taken you know as long a break as they did, and they come back, hey, we're going to put out an album. It's kind of like, oh, God, they're going to try and recapture that old glory. Um, and most of the time it doesn't work. But I remember being really pleasantly surprised with this one. I think this is a pretty solid album. I think I like this one probably more than both King for a Day and uh, Elm of the Year. It's uh, It's got some good stuff on there. I mean, it's probably not quite as daring or as, you know, as adventurous as, you know, a couple of their, some of their albums, but it's, it was good stuff. Like I said, I was pleasantly surprised with it. Maybe that's making me elevate it more than it probably sh- maybe should be. Um, but but I like it. It's one that I, I I go back to when I listen to occasionally. Still, I'm mixed on this album. I when it comes to this album, I don't think it's bad. It's kind of like what you almost said about album of the year. I felt this album felt very safe in some ways. It felt like a much more straightforward rock album again, kind of like album of the year. I think when I listened to it, it's it's not bad. I think I kind of wanted more out of it. And I think the reason I wanted more out of it is that knowing what a lot of these artists had done separately prior to getting back as Faith No More, I was curious and hopeful they would bring a lot more of that experience they had and bring those sounds together. Instead, it's almost this album is almost one of those albums that almost felt like, hey guys, we're going to do a new album. What sounds like a Faith No More album? And I think it's it definitely has the Faith No More sound to it. Billy Gould again very so-so contributions onto the album itself. He did write some stuff that isn't the primary writer on a lot of the songs on here. I, uh, as I said, I, I feel almost that, you know, it's coming back and, you know, having them come back just in general, was a great thing. And I think having his album definitely made a, you know, it made me not nostalgic for like a lot of their older stuff. I think that's just a hard thing is that when you have a category and library like they already have and you bring out something like this, I, I think I wanted something much more impactful and profound. And I don't know if I got it from the, uh, this album. Yeah, and I think maybe you had almost the opposite problem I did where you were maybe expecting, you know, I was maybe not expecting as much. And so since I got something that was, you know, that my opinion was pretty decent, I was maybe a little bit more more impressed than I should have, whereas you were maybe expecting a bit more. And when you got, you know, something I was like, eh. It's okay. So you were maybe let down by it a bit more than I was. Right. Well, 
you know, again, especially when you look at what Mike Patton's solo and previous side project work had been followed up to that, you know, I I just didn't hear any of that on this album. I didn't really hear a lot of the variety of different influence that Mike Patton brought to the table, which is interesting when you consider that this is one of the few Faith No More albums where he has a writing credit on every single song, which he had not had prior to that except for album of the year. And going back to what you know we were saying before about album of the year, he had a lot of writing credits on that too, and I feel that that album and this album just felt like he was going for a specific sound and it's it's not bad it's just that like how you called like you know as an example like album that you're safe i kind of feel that that's how i feel about this album is this album just felt safe to me come on it's got a song called motherfucker how is that safe (laughs) uh that's funny that the song has it has a song called motherfucker why is that uh i don't know why is that well, let me ask this question. There's another band that Mike Patton had. What's that song? Uh, he's had lots of other bands. Which one are you referring to, Mr. Bungle? Well, it's, no, not Mr. Bungle. You're, you're not thinking about it. Peeping Tom? Yeah. What on Peeping Tom is a motherfucker? What am I missing? Ah, yeah. Hang on here. Inform me, damn it. I'm trying to. I'm pulling up. See, that's a hard thing about me, like trying to do like so many different things at once on here. And God damn it. Well, the reason why is that there's a song called Motherfucker on there. All right. And he had a song called Sucker on peeping Tom, but sucker pretty much you should have just called motherfucker because of having Nora Jones, you know, say motherfucker. Yeah, true. Very true. I think she did it better. She did it. That is a pretty solid song on there, but we'll get to that. Right. For sure. Um, I'm, I, th- I think maybe one of the, you know, like now that I've thought about it is it's almost disappointing. Like if this had been a lead into like, okay, we're going to do this album. And then a couple of years later, we had gotten another, Faith Nor album, you could maybe be a bit more forgiving of, you know, how safe and how, you know, not adventurous this was. Like, okay, this is just us getting kind of warmed up. And then maybe two, three years later, they put out another album that's, you know, maybe a little bit more true to true to form than what we expected. But we got this and, you know, I was looking forward to something else. But then we, you know, I mean, here we are five years later and we still haven't gotten it. And I'm, you know, maybe at some point we'll get something else, but I'm certainly not going to hold my breath. I think part of it too is that, you know, as, as the band goes at this point, you know, they're at, I think a point in stage where I think they're fine getting back together and touring and playing with what they have, you know, from the start. I don't know if they will ever come back together and say, Hey, we're going to make another album. I think they're happy with their body of work Mm -hmm. is I think they're happy playing what that body of work is. But, you know, they've been asked, you know, before, hey, are you going to make another album? They said there's no plans to. And I think part of it is, is that maybe just when you think about how diverse some of the personalities are in the band, they're kind of maybe at a point where they're able to work together, but maybe they can only take each other in small doses. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a case where, like, you know, hey, we've put out this many albums. We've kind of said what we want to say here. Yeah, we like hanging out with each other, but we don't necessarily want to 
go through the whole slog of recording another studio album plus you know inevitably touring with it and all the all the work that goes along with it you know like i know they're they were supposed to tour this summer but i think they got pushed off till next year with everything going on with corn and i forget who else with but uh you know i'm sure they're fine with, yeah and i think so somebody else too it was actually a fairly decent lineup but you know so i'm sure they're fine doing stuff like that where it's like okay minimal you know commitment to it we don't have to you know sit in a studio for months at a time and bang out an album so which is fine you know I'd, I'd much rather them do stuff that they like to do and rather than just like we said before just churn out album after album of just complete crap yeah it's you know and i i think you know too like mike Patton, he's always going to keep working on other things you know at this point and you know i i think that's the big thing right there is that the band at this point has now become synonymous with Mike Patton. So if Mike Patton doesn't want to do anything, well, they probably aren't going to do anything, especially yeah. now that he's, he's always got like two or three, you know, coals in the fire in terms of what he's working on side projects. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, you're not, you're not you know, like we had talked before, you're not going to replace Mike Patton with somebody else and have it go over well, like at all. No. So uh, with soul Invictus, favorite and weakest song, I, I don't think there's one on here that I can sit there and say is a favorite. I don't think there's another song on here I could say is the weakest. I just, this this feels always like an album to me where I can listen to it, but it's not something that, you know, really pops to me, so. I like it. I don't know what I'd say. I've got a favorite on there. I like, you know, Sunnyside Up is good. Cone of Shame is pretty decent. Um, there's a couple others I like. I don't, as far as least favorite, I don't know, hard to say. You know, that last one, Superhero, Bataglia doesn't ring a bell so maybe that one yeah i don't know yeah yeah so all of that being said we've covered at least all their studio albums faith no more you know would have tons of b-sides as well uh their b-sides and other work they have uh ranges uh as we said we've already mentioned a lot of the b-sides they've had like from the real thing as well as uh you know their other albums there's an album that had probably the most amount of B-sides was actually King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. Um, they would have soundtracks. Uh, they were on, as John mentioned before, the Bill and Ted Bogus Journey soundtrack with The Perfect Crime, which was a rewrite of a song called Sweet Emotion that they wrote uh, earlier in the Real Thing days. They've uh, done albums such as uh, a song as is, uh, uh, Just Another Body Murders with uh, the... Uh, Booyah Tribe on the Judgment Night soundtrack. I'm trying to think what else they've also had any part of at this point. Um, I'm not sure. You've hit most of the major ones, I think, at least. Right. A lot of different things that they've had, you know, just going on in terms of B-sides. I think that was always my favorite hobby, at least the late 80s, early 90s, was trying to find CDs with uncovered material on there. On their Who Cares A Lot uh, two album, Greatest Hits album they released, they would have like a whole bunch of unreleased songs on there that eventually would be released when they did uh, the studio re-releases of all their subsequent albums. Uh, they did do that with the Real Thing Angel Dust, King for a Day, and Album of the Year, where eventually they would re-release those with all the bonus and extra material that were all associated with those albums, as well as uh, live songs on there as well, too. Like some of my favorites on there too, like exact, especially the real thing is listening to some of the stuff that I always find amusing. Cause like as an example, in uh, Brixton uh, Academy recordings, 
and they play We Care a lot. Do you remember like what the uh, during the breakdown part of the song, what song that uh Mike Patton starts to sing? Oh, it's like is it like a new kid song or a vanilla ice song or something? It is a new kids in the black song. The right stuff. There you go. Yep. Well, one song, a couple of songs, like if you listen to, uh, and you could see like Mike Patton just was trying to find ways to shoehorn songs into anything. If you listen to like the uh, live version of Chinese arithmetic, you'll hear uh, him playing uh, uh, It Takes Two by um, Rob Bates. And uh, God, why am I dropping it? I don't know. Because I've been talking for way too long at this point. That's yes. my problem. Other things uh, I would say notable, notable about Faith and More, especially with Mike Patton. Mike Patton would go on, and I don't think there's a guy out there that has maybe as many albums out there as Mike Patton does. Because in addition to the several albums of Faith and More, he has several albums with Mr. Bungle. He has a side project, Tomahawk, which he has about four albums with, if I'm correct. Single album with Peeping Tom. Uh, you have, of course, the work he's done where he's done a lot of uh, single work as well with uh, various vocal work on movies, games. He does a lot yeah. of weird things like uh, Phantomas. And, uh, Phantomas, he's done a couple like video game scores. He's done a couple like full-blown movie scores, you know, like classically composed type stuff. Um, and a lot of stuff where he's, he's worked with like just different artists where it's, you know, like I remember one was what general Patton versus the, uh, the executioners. Yeah. Which was, I seem to remember being fairly decent. There's another one he did with a guy named Kata, who was kind of this Norwegian. I don't even know how you yep. explain it, but just, you know, stuff like that. And then he does more traditional, like old school kind of singing stuff where he sings in like Italian Mondo Kane, where it's like him with like an old school orchestra behind him, just belting out these classically, you know, orchestrated songs and yeah, the guy basically just goes out and does whatever the heck he wants, basically. And it's kind of amazing that there's there's almost something for everybody that you can like. There's some just straight-up bizarre stuff, too, like his adult themes for voice, which I've never actually listened to, but it's basically just him. I have. It is fucking weird as hell. Yes. Well, that one, and I think, what is it, the second or third Phantomas album, the one where it's like, a, like two 30-minute songs or something? Well, wait, wasn't the second Phantomas album where he redid The Omen? No, I think that's the third one, but I could be wrong. But either way, he does some super avant-garde stuff where it's just, you know, almost unlistenable. Um, but it's the stuff that he wants to put out there, and he doesn't really care. Like, he's not, you know, he's not, he didn't put out adult themes for voice to be a, it's a big, huge commercial success. You know, it's ba- it was basically him just, you know, I'm going to scream and do all this weird stuff into a microphone and, you know, test out my vocal range and see what I can do. And what the hell, I'll put it on an album and see if people, you know, if people want to listen to it, they can. And if they like it, cool. If they don't, I don't really care. Um, I think my favorites out of the stuff he did, you know, during and after Faith No More, my favorites are probably Mr. Bungle and Tomahawk, which are probably the two more, you know, two more listenable ones. I think Tomahawk sounds almost more like what Faith No More maybe could have been if they had kept going. You know, it's got some of the different, you know, same sounds to it um california by mr bungle which you mentioned earlier is probably one of my favorite albums um probably in the top five just because it's just this bizarre you know just eclectic version you know gathering of songs that just every time i listen to it i hear something different you know i mean there's songs on there that sound like the beach boys there's songs on there that are like you know brian setzer you know these big band type sounding songs it's just this this bizarre weird 
eclectic, you know, it, it's almost like Angel Dust Part 2, basically, you know, where if Angel Dust and all the songs on there just have these weird, weird different genres and songs, so does California. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing the amount of stuff he's put out after, you know, during and post Faith No More. I think it's hard to say what my favorite is of his, you know, Mike Patton's independent work. Uh, with Mr. Bungle, California was definitely a good album. Actually, uh, with their uh, uh, Disco Violante, their second album, I went and saw them at First Avenue perform that album. That was one of the most weirdest performances ever because all they did was play songs off Disco Violante. They did not play anything off their first album, uh, Mr. Bungle album. And they wore masks the entire performance, and the whole crowd was just kind of getting irritated. They kept yelling, you know, play certain songs like, you know, from Mr. Bungle, like play Girls of Porn or, you know, play this. And they were just playing, you know, that album itself. Mr. Bungle's fine. I always prefer, in my opinion, I prefer uh, Tomahawk and Peeping Tom a little bit more. Uh, Tomahawk, I think, you know, their uh, first and second albums are definitely very, very strong albums. Uh, the first album, like one of my favorite songs of their band altogether is 101 North, which is basically a song about picking up a hitchhiker that's going to kill everybody, which, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but. Is that the one but, uh, where, you, where you put the bag, cat in the bag and the bag in the river? Or is there a different uh, song for that one? No, that's a different one. Uh, then uh, off of their second one, which is, uh, oh man, now I'm just dropping it. Mid-gas. The German one. Yeah, Mitgas. Uh, you know, that one had, I think a lot, you know, more better production value than the first one. And also a lot of great songs on there too. Uh, peeping Tom, you know, when he made peeping Tom, that was also where he said he wanted to make songs that was what his version of pop music should sound like. And you definitely get a lot of various unique songs on there. I, I think he's truly one of the best vocalists out there in terms of just pure range. I, it's hard to narrow down, you know, what his best work is, but he is definitely a guy that lives to make music and lives to make his music. And I think that's kind of like going back to my point, why we're not going to probably see another Faith No More album. The fact we got another one at all was probably an amazing thing. I think he just gets bored and he just wants to move on and do different things. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, he's definitely, he's one of those artists where, he's going to create music even if nobody's listening to it. You know, he's going to make music the way he wants to. He's going to put it out there. The fact that he has an audience, I think is probably a bonus for him, but I don't, ultimately, I don't think he cares. Like if one day he found out he didn't have any fans, he'd be like, eh, whatever, I'll just make music in my basement and nobody will listen to it. And that's fine. You know, I think he, he does stuff that he wants to do and he's not super concerned if it's something that's going to be, you know, on the top 10 or whatever charts or any charts. He almost probably prefers it doesn't because you don't get that pressure and you don't have to work for it, you know, like that. Um, and I think that's admirable. You know, a lot of people are like, I've got to get back on the hit charts. And, you know, where she's just like, eh, I just want to make music. And, you know, that's okay. I think the best way to explain Mike Patton is that he's as, probably as close to avant-garde as possible, but still dances around, like, various genres. And, he, you know, he's such a weirdly unique individual where you can just see where he has such a passion for different types of things, experimenting, hey, give me a gas mask, give me a megaphone. You know, you could probably give him a harmonica, um, you know, a piece of felt and maybe a violin bow, and he would find a way to try to incorporate it into a song if you, you know, gave him the time. So definitely a great musician itself. Did you ever listen to Imperial Team? 
I did not, but I've heard it's pretty solid. That's one when you mentioned it earlier that I kind of made a mental note that I need to go track that down and, and give it a listen. Uh, yeah, I have one of their albums, What Is Not the Love, or what is, I can't remember what it is now called. I have it. It's an okay one. They had a song on there called uh, uh, You Who, which was on also the movie Jawbreaker as well. Uh, you know, Roddy Bottom, you know, interesting guy. I think he was willing to go on kind of doing like a, it was weird. His sound almost reminded me a lot more of, uh, what do you call uh, the Pixies in terms of what type of vibe he was trying to go for and, you know, did some decent things. Borden, as I said, kind of went all over and he's drummed for so many different bands and filled in, but hasn't really had his own big thing. You know, Billy Gould's the one guy that I always find to be very curious in terms of, you know, musicians because he has so many writing credits to his, you know, you know, the, to his resume at this point, I always find it weird that he never really has gone on or, you know, really done a lot of other things as much on his own as he probably should have. I mean, he, he has like, you know, other, you know, side things that he's worked on, but nothing that's really ever been as mainstream as Faith No More or anything that's ever been, I don't know, as, as big as what he's done on Faith No More. Yeah, I'm looking at his, I just topped onto his Wikipedia page, and there's Bruharia, Fear in the Nervous System. So, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of bands that, you know, Bill Goulden, Epstein, Jay Jorgensen. So, yeah, nothing, yeah, definitely nothing is mainstream, um, which is too bad because I think, you know, I think obviously he was, you know, as much as Mike Patton, the big driving force behind Faith No More, so it would have been nice to be able to see some more stuff from him where he doesn't have... You know, where he's got different people he's working with. You can see what else he can do. An, another guy that kind of also just weirdly disappeared, you know, out of nowhere is after leaving Faith No More, Jim Martin, really. He didn't do that much. I mean, he made some various appearances in some albums here and there with some just people, but nothing that ever really went anywhere. He did have some, you know, features where he's, you know, played with some other musicians, but again it's just a weird sort of thing where you know this is a guy who is an amazing guitarist and it always struck me odd that he never picked up or went with a different band and you know moved on with that yeah again i'm kind of looking here he doesn't really he's got faith no more he did a couple songs with metallica on a couple of their albums song with primus but yeah nothing else yeah nothing else yeah. really prolific at all yeah it's just weird yeah. You, you figure, like, you know, especially a guy that was like, hey, I don't like what Faith Moore's doing. You figure he'd go on and do his own thing. He just didn't. No, he did. Right after Angel Dust, he did Voodoo Cult in 95. And then just a bunch of one-off stuff here and there. One well, one album with this band, one album with that band. And, yeah, but nothing, nothing all that terribly substantial. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, uh, yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering this. This episode definitely went very long, and I kind of figured it would because we love Faith No More this much. But it's, I, th you know, it's definitely one of those things that if it's a band that you've not listened to, I highly implore check it out. Check out the real thing in Angel Dust. I think are the two quintessential albums of Faith No More, and 
I think the nice thing is, is that the way music is available nowadays, you can probably go to YouTube and find any variety of different songs out there. Search out uh, other works from Mike Patton as well, such as Tomahawk, Mr. Bungle, and Peeping Tom. I think those are also very similar rock uh, albums as well that people would like. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I mean, Tomahawk's great stuff. Peeping Tom is one I didn't really talk about a whole lot, but it's, you know, it's Mike Patton. He's worked with a whole bunch of other different artists and bands, and that's that's one I thought was too bad we never got a follow-up to. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff there. Like I said before, like Mike Patton's done probably something that everybody could like. You know, like even my mom could probably listen to Mondo Kane and appreciate some of the stuff on there where he's singing in Italian. So, you know, take a look. Do some digging around. You might find something you like. Yep. So uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for us this episode. We'd like to thank you for listening to us ramming about probably one of our favorite bands. Yes, it's been good times. I'm gonna, I've got some some chores now to go listen to some stuff I haven't listened to in a while. Yeah, as I said, try giving introduce yourself another shot, John. I think you might be surprised. Yeah, between that one and uh, King for a Day, I've got some I've got some listening to do the next few days here. Yes, you do. Well, thank you for joining us. This is one of your hosts, Mike Spraggle. And this is the other host, John Lundquist. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Yes, everybody. Have a good one.